Hello and welcome back to Gallo Vault Sessions, a six-part podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. This is the fourth episode of the season. In this podcast, we chat with artists, label execs, radio veterans and thinkers as we explore the backdrops and overlooked tapes from the Gallo Vault and reflect on the ways music shapes culture and how our culture has been shaped by music. In today's episode, we will pick up on some threads from earlier in the season and take a look at some of the stories behind the talent scouts and in-house producers at the labels that would eventually fall under Gallo Music, the people behind so much of the music and who in some ways had exceptional power to shape the sound of what we have come to associate with South African music. We'll hear from legendary Penny Whistler and organ jive player Bra Lulu Masilela from the Boyoyo Boys Mahilda Klubatla, and the original soprano from the Mahotela Queens, as well as Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse, Bra Mike Swaratle, and Rob Allingham, who you met in previous episodes. But before we start our story, we have a quick note from our producer. It is important to note that much of the contemporary language of the recording industry continues to be influenced by South Africa's apartheid racial classifications and the South African Broadcasting Corporation's policies under the apartheid regime. We are aware that some of the language used by the guests in this series is outdated, and in some cases, pejorative. And we see it as our duty to critically unpack these nuanced connections so that we can imagine new language for the recording industry on the continent. In the early years of South Africa's recording industry, you didn't really hear the term producers until the late 60s. Instead, record labels first used the term talent scout to describe the individuals they hired to not only find artists and composers to record and sign with the label, but also to help shape and package artists and groups for the black music market. Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse. The recording industry was controlled by uh, white people in general, and uh, if they would have needed anybody record African music, they would have to find an African. And most of those that came in may have been themselves musicians before, almost like what we see in football. You play soccer first and then you become the coach. With the conditions of colonialism and then apartheid came the reality that the recording industry in South Africa was once entirely white-owned and run by individuals who lived distinctly privileged lives in exclusively white areas and would have no significant reference point for the kind of black art and culture that was both current and popular among the segregated black population. It is for this reason that Eric Gallo, the founder of Gallo Music, hired Griffiths Motsielwa as a talent scout in 1930 to record and produce black artists for Eric's singer label. In the first episode of the season, Rob Allingham told us how Griffiths Motsielwa was sent to London to recruit South African students in the UK as musicians before Gallo had the ability to create master recordings locally. Motsielwa was born in Lesotho, later moved to South Africa and studied to be a teacher at Lovedale College in King Williamstown, and later studied elocution and acting at Trinity College in London in the 20s, before he became a musician and music producer. He became responsible for the recording and performance of a slew of early popular black groups, not just as a producer and talent scout, but also as an impresario, or what we now refer to as a promoter, organizing shows and dances, and operating in the theater and music scenes across racial circles. 
his group would play early jazz, tabataba, as well as European music styles, including yodels. Let's listen to Motielua's most successful group, the Pitch Black Follies, a group he recruited in the 1930s with their 1939 recording of Tabatabak in number one. Mozzello's role as talent scout for Eric Gallo earned him a significant amount of economic independence. And in many respects, Griffiths really represented upward mobility for the urbanizing black population. In the 1940s, he really signified a modern man, confidently in control of his destiny and firmly at the helm of a domestic household. He and his group demonstrated a mastery of both African classical music and European jazz music in their efforts to disprove racist and patronizing ideas of the so-called black native as being less capable than their white counterparts. Mozzielua really helped set the tone for what would become the township jazz scene. But with this perceived upward mobility achieved through musical mastery, lay what Chris Ballantyne terms a treacherous contradiction. Whilst labels' employment of black producers and talent scouts open doors for the emergence of black music to be produced autonomously, it tends to be ensnarled in label and performance structures that were exploitative for both producer and the musicians, and geared towards profit and not owned or controlled by those who created it. At the time, and unfortunately many decades into the future, Gallo Music built up an infamous reputation for such exploitative dealings with both black producers and, by extension, black artists. Throughout this episode, we will see how this very structure of labels relying on talent scouts set up a situation where talent scouts became the very buffer zone between labels who profited off black recorded music and the artists who bore the brunt of industry exploitation and financial disregard. In our first episode, Gallo's royalties manager, Mike Swaratle, mentioned that Penny Whistler, Spokes Mashiane, was the first black South African to receive a royalty deal in 1958. Uh, he was the first uh, black artist to get composers' royalties. Black composers were not getting uh, composers' royalties. It was only for whites. Eh? Most black artists were paid a session fee for their recordings, whilst the talent scouts or producers were salaried employees of the labels that hired them collecting both producers and oftentimes composers' royalties. What you should understand, in most cases, they were on Gallo payroll and also getting an override out of the productions they did for Gallo. They were fully employed by Gallo, but also getting producers' royalties from the product that they did for various artists. And so, as South African record companies started to develop black music catalogues, they became increasingly reliant on hiring black talent scouts to produce music that resonated with black audiences, and also to run these semi-autonomous African music divisions of the label, managing their own staff, budgets, and creative outputs. It's important to remember that at this time, the country was segregated not just racially, but also with regard to class, 
Most black men living in Johannesburg were migrants, living in all-male hostels and working on the mines or as laborers. And yet in the music industry, we see black men in private enterprise with exceptional financial responsibility and power for the time, each with their own go-to star vocalist and a line of session musicians on tap, ready to record. In downtown Johannesburg, amongst the towering historic buildings, was a place problematically known as Loafer's Corner, located at the intersection between Gallo, EMI, and several other recording outfits, where session musicians and street musicians would gather, hoping to get picked up for a session for the day. There was even a recording by the name Loafer's Corner by Orlando Seven. By the 1950s, there were several major producers who emerged from the scene. Rupert Bobape, who would go on to produce the Mahotela Queens, Strike Vilakazi, and Cuthbert Matumba. They were considered the absolute kings of music in this era. And as it happens, much of the work of all these producers would eventually fall under Gallo music. One of the most successful songs to have come out of Gallo's entire history is the hit Mirolens, which was composed by Strike Villagazi, who initially worked for True Tone in the early 50s. The song was written in reaction to the forced relocation of black residents from Sophia Town to the new townships of Mirolens, and was popularized by Dorothy Masuku, who was the star vocalist for arguably the most critical talent scout and producer in South African music history, Cuthbert Matumba. In Cuthbert's heyday, it's said that Troubadour was way over 60% of the entire black record business, and Masuku was by far their biggest and brightest star, making her one of the leading record artists of the time. As producer for Troubadour, Cuthbert Matumba wouldn't shy away from recording material with political commentary, and it's said that the company would occasionally receive unexpected visits from the special branch of the police who often confiscated masters and copies of the records. In 1961, Musuku wrote and recorded the song Lumumba in response to the execution of the newly elected pan-Africanist leader of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba. The South African special branch caught wind of the recording, confiscating the master, and began a search party for Musuku. She returned to Buluwayo and remained there on the advice of Troubadour and Cuthbert Matumba. Musuku was then forbidden from re-entering South Africa and remained in exile for the next 31 years, writing, teaching, and also working as an air hostess. This is Dorothy Masuku with Imali Eshabin. In addition to producing Dorothy Musuku, whose voice and lyrical style would go on to influence almost every major female voice that would come out of Gallo, 
Cuthbert was also the first producer to record John Bengu, also known as Puzu Shugela, the grandfather figure of Maskandi. Both Musuku and Cuthbert's contribution to music in South Africa is really no small feat. Rob Allingham. Cuthbert had a very open-door policy. The deal was that if there were nobody in the door, well, then they'd all get together and they'd make music. And as soon as they had rehearsed something and made up something for the day, bingo! Troubadour, in addition to their studio and their offices, they had a pressing plant. So Cuthbert would press up a test pressing of whatever the day's work would be, and then he'd be out there with his mobile. They, both EMI and Troubadour had what they called mobiles, which were like a VW bus with a turntable and an amplifier and then a speaker on the top. And Cuthbert would, would drive to, you know, one of the train stations. He'd be playing the music as the commuters were coming in from Soweto, and if it was something that a passerby heard and said, oh man, I like that record, you'd get a slip with a catalog number. And then you'd take that slip of paper to your record dealer. Oh, okay, AFC 527. And there it was. Cuthbert was a real, a real marketing hustler of of note. Bopape himself told me that he considered himself to always be following on Cuthbert's coattails. Cuthbert was the guy that had the ideas. Let's meet Bralulu Masilela, who first recorded with Cuthbert Matumba when he was just 13 years old and benefited directly from Matumba's open-door policy and Troubadour's ability to turn out quick pressings in-house. Let's hear his remarkable story. My name is Lulu Masilela. Music is our family disease. Every Sunday after church, we used to go to my, our grandfather's house. It was an organ of the family. And my elder brothers had pen whistles. And by then, their pen whistles uh, were costing 15 cents. I went to steal one of them. I still have that pen whistle. I still have it now. So at the age of 13, uh, at home since... They used to send me to Jobeck to go and buy records. I knew where Troubadour Records was. I was on a train looking up at the JP station. It's 12 o'clock. Let me just quickly run my records for my elder brothers, and thereafter, let me go to Troubadour. The late uh, Calvert Matumba was a talent scout. The late Brazix was there with his band, City Jazz 9. I went in. They said, hey, boy, as young as you are, what are you doing here? I said, no, no, I'm coming from Merton, but Merton Farms. I was not ashamed to tell people that I'm I'm a farm boy. They said, okay, now what do you want to see here? I showed them my my penny whistle. Can you play it? I said, yes. Then I got a group. In Mayatin, they said, okay, now can you, what, what do you actually want? Do you come in, do you want to bring them here for us to record? I said, yes, they said, okay. Next Saturday, come here with your Mayatin pride boys and, and record. Ooh, I was happy, I was very excited. The following week, a young Lulu Masilela returned to Troubadour with a local band in his area, the Mayerton Bright Boys, and recorded their first single with Cuthbert Matumba. The Penny Whistle Band can be seen performing in the street with the Snake Town Shambas in the poster photograph for the 1959 film 
Comeback Africa. Hmm. We came back from Troubadour after recording. Every one of us got his own record. Ooh. We came home. I became king of the afternoon. So every Friday after school, I must go to Jobek, perform in the street with the street musicians. Then I went back to record with the Everton Flute Masters. Then I went back again with the other group that was called Mayat and Hot Diamonds. There was a song of Bass by Court. Tibe sister mutariana, tiense muferifiri, babambari hadikanam. Titled Azikwelo. This one had me on a penny whistle with Everton Flute Masters. was Lulu Masilela playing us Azikwelwa in his home in Siwokeng on the very same penny whistle he nicked from his older brother when he was 13. Let's hear the 1957 recording produced by Cuthbert Matumba and performed by the Alexander Kaspers and Mabel Mafuya, who was in fact mentored by Dorothy Masu. When everybody was shouting, Azikwelwa! We Will Not Ride, commemorating the 1957 Alexander bus boycotts, which lasted almost six months in defiance of fare increase for black commuters. At its height, 70,000 township residents refused to ride local Putko buses to and from work. The boycotts were successful and eventually resulted in the government agreeing to a public subsidy of the fare that would return the old fare on a long-term basis. Used to pay us nine pounds per person. Nine pounds. We knew nothing about royalties then. We knew nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm. 
I, to me, uh, the Kabbat Matumba was uh, respecting people honestly. He did not have the nerve of mishandling musicians like other people used to do. One thing for sure, he was a good person. Cuthbert Matumba continued to produce under Troubadour until his death in 1965. It was a year earlier that Rupert Bopape moved from EMI, where he was also a talent scout, to head a new black music division for Gallo Record Company called Mavutela Music Company. Under Bopape's tutelage, Mavotela pioneered the new up-tempo Mbatanga music with electric instrumentation, girl group harmony, and male soloists. Mbappe's biggest successes as a producer at Mavutela might have been Izindombi Zomoya, the Grona Simon Maslatini Gabinde, and of course, the Mahotela Queens. But it was the Mahona Tzohle band who really helped Mbappe shape the Mbatanga and Mkashio instrument styles. The group was formed in 1964 and became the Mavotela house band, backing fellow Mavotela Gallo stars, Maslatini and the Mavotela queens. The band, having backed a great deal of Gallo artists, is often referred to as the South African equivalent of Motown's The Funk Brothers, who backed almost every lead artist during the Motown era. Let's listen to the Mahona Tzohle band with their instrumental Mabeu Beu. was the great Mahona Tzohle band, Joseph Makwela, Lucky Monama, Marx Mangwane, Vivian Gubane, and of course, the penny whistler and saxophonist, West Nkosi, who later went on to produce the Grammy award-winning Istatamia group, Ladysmith Black Mambazo. Let's hear from Mum Hilda Tlaubatla, the last surviving member of the original Mahotela Queens, who worked with the original Mahona Tzohle band. Mahona Tzohle band, and Mautela Queens and Maslatin was really a family. We respected our boys and they too, they respected us and they took us really like sisters. No, that was a beautiful band, really. Ah, the best guitarist. Yeah, we had the late Max Mangwani, the late Weston Kosi, Joseph Makwele Laki Munama, our rhythm guitarist Vivian Gubani, he's passed away also. We, we had all the best guitarists and my God, people loved our music and uh, I miss them a lot. This is Hilda Tlobatla. I was born and brought up in, in Gotema Springs, and I attended school there. Everything about me happened in Painville and Springs. I was supposed to go to do my matric in a boarding school in Hamanskra, but most unfortunately, I never went. Only my luggage went to, to school. 
my luggage went to women's school, but I never arrived because I loved music and I wanted to see myself being a musician. Mum Hilda never joined her luggage at her boarding school in Hammanskral and instead effectively ran away from home, like so many others who had aspirations of a different life. She set her sights on Johannesburg. I came to Johannesburg. I just said to myself, this is my chance of singing. And there was this company, Galo Record Company. When we grew up, Galo was the biggest company to us and Troubadour. But then I just said, I wanted Galo, Galo in Johannesburg. That was even my first time in a train. I didn't even know where Johannesburg was. I kept asking to the people in the train, can you show me Johannesburg? I don't know Johannesburg. They said, okay, don't worry, relax. We'll tell you when we reach Johannesburg. And when we reached Johannesburg, I went off the train. And from the train station, I kept asking, where is Galo? Where is Galo? I was directed until I reached Galo. And I went into Galo and I was asked by the receptionist, can I help you? I said, yes, I want to sing. And fortunately, I came at the right time. He called Rupert Kupape that day. Is this lady? She says he's here, he wants to sing. Rupert said, yeah, you came at the right time because I'm short of one person. The part that I'm looking for, I hope you are singing that part. So Rupert Bobape sent a young Hilda to audition for the soprano part of the group. And I was blessed. I was fortunate that I could sing all the keys exactly. And at that time, he was, Bobape was still busy wanting to form this Mautela Queens. And yeah, this is how I became a queen. I didn't even know that it was to whether I'd be a musician, but from when I was still young at school, they would say, my God, she's got a beautiful voice. Teachers would fight to say, no, I want her in my choir. No, I want her in my choir. They even formed a jazz group. Our group were the best voices. I would sing songs of Bumire Makeba, Doli Ratebe, Dorothy Masugu. Those were the songs that we were singing in school when we had our concert. Of course, they were all Gallo's biggest stars to come out of the 50s. By the time Mum Hilda boldly walked into Gallo and passed her audition, Mobape already recorded two songs with the other members, Juliet Mazamisa, Ethel Ngomezulu, Nobesutum Badu and Mildred Mangrola. But it was only once he had heard them sing together with Mum Hilda were the Mahotela queens born. We, we recorded a lot of songs and our music was played on air every day and every minute for the whole day. And oh my God, it was really played. And at that time, the radio station was still a radio bantu. People were really crazy of Mahotela queens and the voice, Matlatini's voice. It was Matlatin and the Mautela Queen. As Mum Hilda had run away from home, she spent her first few months with the Queens, staying with Ethel Mgomezulu and her parents in Alexander Township. The story of how her parents eventually found out where she was is quite remarkable. The queens were photographed by Drum Magazine to advertise the farewell concert of Leta Mbulu, who was set to go into exile. The queens were the opening act, and a colleague of Mamhilda's mother saw her in the advertisement and showed it to the family. From then, her parents realized she was destined for stardom and supported her career. <laughs> Oh, yeah.
That was Hambam Zala off their 1966 album Meet the Mahotela Queens, accompanied by the Mahono Tohle Band and Matlatini, and produced by Rupert Bobape. Most of the early catalogue from the Queens remains undigitized and fairly unknown in comparison to the music that broke them internationally. In fact, on these earlier releases, the album was always listed as the Mahotela Queens or the Mahotela Queens and the Mahona Tohle Band. Whilst he always sang with them, Maslatini's name only joined the headline on album releases some years later. Rupert Popape was a, a kind man and very, very strict when it comes to music and time and behavior. Popape, he was one of the big deals. He was one of the big guys. Peter Gallo wouldn't play around with that man. Never. It's like if he would get to the office to find that there's a meeting without his knowledge, he would just come in and say, hey, Kalu, 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 why she can't tell me the meeting must off now? Peter would go behind him and say, okay, Mrena, they used to call him Mrena. Oh, Mrena, please, please, please. And Max Manguani's shame, like Munamas and Joseph Makwela's Mashatinis, when they speak to that man, they would kneel down on their knees and say, Mrena, Mrena. So there's a kind of a person that he was. Whilst it's clear that Bopape had a great deal of creative control in Mavutela, it's important to remember how producers acted as the intermediaries between the label and artists. Everything was Bupapes. He's the guy who was doing everything. Oh, no, we had nothing to do with Kalo, no meeting with them or any arrangements. And with us, we knew nothing during that time. We didn't even know about contracts. We were not the same like these children of today. We were just excited to say, my God, I'm singing and I'm recording now. And I've signed a contract. What are the regulations of the contract? We knew nothing about that. We didn't even sign. This is what we are during the time when we grew up. So Bupape was the person who was doing everything. We knew nothing about that. Gano was dealing with Bupape and... Yeah, and we were not getting paid at these royalties that they are getting, no. We were only excited to say, even if you get nine pounds, you say, my God, I've got man. <laughs> and with us, the songs, you are not getting royalties for a song which is not yours. We would record, and after recording the songs, we'd all have to go and get its money for recording. And for the royalties, they go to a composer and... We knew nothing about all of those things. We knew nothing. And we were not that brilliant like these children that we wanted to know that all what we were excited about is that we are musicians and we are recording. We were not that brilliant. Whilst Mum Hilda laughs about this today, the reality is quite alarming. And unfortunately, it was not uncommon for black artists to sign a contract with a label without their necessarily ensuring the artists were clear on the conditions of the deal. The fact remains that the record industry was never built for black producers or musicians to necessarily flourish financially, especially not in apartheid South Africa. Rupert Bopape retired from the music industry in 1979, concentrating his energies on building up local businesses around his home place of Zanin Limpopo. 
and died on June 15, 2012, in Mohapeng Village, Limpopo, age 86. Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our media sponsors, Sowetan and Sowetan Live. The Sowetan is a proudly South African news, lifestyle and entertainment publication that dates back to the early 80s with its roots as a liberation struggle newspaper. It is still one of Mzanzi's most influential platforms of trusted journalism with over 3 million unique readers a month, promoting social activism and celebrating excellence. Pick up a copy daily at your nearest newspaper outlet nationwide or log on to Sowetan Live and be a part of the rhythm of the nation. Gallo Vault Sessions. Let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back to episode four of Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast collaboration with Gonjo. So far, we've heard about some of South Africa's great music producers. Griffiths Motzielwa behind the Pitch Black Follies, Cuthbert Matumba from Troubadour, who helped produce the iconic Dorothy Masuka, and of course, Rupert Bobape, who spearheaded Gallo Record Company's Mavutela label. At the same time as Mavutela, the Gramophone Record label, also a division of Gallo Music, started its own black music imprint by the name of Isibaya Esikulu, Large Kral. They brought in a man named Hamilton Nzimande, who, like Bobape, was also poached from EMI Records. Isibaya Esikulu was the African division of the Gramophone Record Company division of Gallo, Africa. And it was run by Hamilton Nzamande. Hamilton, again, is just one of the absolutely crucial, critical figures in the development of African urban music. In addition to also producing artists like Puzu Shugela, Hamilton Zimande went on to form a group named Izintombi Zesi Manje Manje that ultimately was the Isibaya Esikulu response to the Mavutela-produced Mahotela Queens. Formed in 1967 by Nzimande, Izintombi Zase Manje Manje were known not just for their sublime vocal harmony, but also their perfect Afro hairstyles that reached for the sky. The Ntombizes Manje Manje, they were formed because of Mahotela Queens Party. What I must tell you, they were also a good group. They also became a good group, really. And their producer, Hamilton Zimande, was also a good guy. They also became known and popular in terms of Manje Manje. And if you would see us, we are competing, my God. <laughs> it was lovely, it was beautiful during that time, yes. It was like a playful competition, but because we'd say, wherever we are, to show you that really the Mautela Queens were the best, wherever we're performing, they wouldn't allow us to go first on stage. They would say, Tomizas Manje Manje first on stage, then Mautela Queens after, to each and every band that were performing. But I must tell you, in Tomizas Manje Manje, they also became a big group and a beautiful group. There was all this competitive environment that uh, would grow or develop the industry uh, between the Makona Zoshe Band and the Mahotelo Queens. And, uh, you know, the Mahotelo Queens and in, is in Dombizas Manja Manja. They 
all belong to the Gallo group, but in different labels within the Gallo group. In addition to the vocal quartet Izindombe Zasemanje Manje, Hamilton Zimande also produced his own records given his background as a vocalist and recording musician himself. This is Ndombi Zodwad Lamini by Hamilton Zimande, released on his Isibaya Esikulu label. Zimande also produced the likes of Puzu Shugela, the Soul Brothers, and also the legendary composer, Brazax Ngorsi, who wrote and recorded the song Jackpot in 1960 when he was still working at EMI, which is said to be the inspiration for Abdullah Ibrahim's Manenberg. Let's give it a listen. Zakes worked and did a lot of recording for Nzimandes by Eskulu. Oh, Zakes is an absolutely seminal figure. I mean, he was, he was just an all-around great musician, you know, great composer, really good sax player, played great clarinet, was a great band leader. Oh, yeah, no, he, Zakes was a powerhouse. In the later 60s, going into the 70s, Zakes recorded a lot for Sakulu two albums, and a whole slew of singles. At the same time, Bralulu Masilela started working with producer David Tekwane at what was then Teal Records, the same label where Bra Mike Swaratle started his career in the industry. We used to box together. He used to play soccer together. Until one day, he asked me if I could work with him. I said, no problem. Okay, okay. By then, Till Records Company had the, the recording studio next to Alexandra. I'm on my own, he's on his own, started putting together the Boyoyo boys. Having grown up with the Hammond organ in his home and with the great local influence of Booker T and the MGs, Bralulu improvised and the organ jive sound of the Boyoyo boys was solidified. The hit of Gelo is the Nakodia. Then we are playing saxophones, okay. Then I started thinking now, what else can we do here, Hammond organ? I was running scales. Ta -ta, ta -ta, ta -ta. David always, David said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Keep on, just keep playing. Then David said, oh, we're recording. Play the same melody that you played now. And please don't tell me that you've forgotten the melody. I said, no, no. Ta -da, ta -da, ta -ta, ta -ta. And he said, good. Then rhythm section, bam, bam. That was now the rhythm that was created by the scaling that I was doing on an organ. It became a monster hit. Boyoy was way in. We were in. It became a monster hit. Thank you. 
That was the organ jive hit Small Time by the Boyoyo Boys. Site A was titled Small Time. We used to knock off at half past four. Now the time was small. Now David's titled that song Small Time. I titled the flip side Big Change. So that was now the beginning of Boyoyo Boys to go on. We were oppositions to Mahona Sotheben. We used to be a very, very good opposition to them. Whilst Bralulu wrote many of the songs on David Tekwane's productions, albums would often come out with all producers and composers' credits to David Tekwane alone. This is another way in which the system of contracting in-house producers worked against the artists. The information would be produced by Lulu Masilela or David Tewani's production. And whom did I have to, to ask or to question? Nobody. I was his right-hand man. But I didn't have authority to ask him because the talent scouts, for instance, like David Tewani was, a, how can I put it, was the firstborn of the late Mr. McGrath. Mr. McGrath was the head of Teal Records at the time, and in Bralulu's words, Teguane was the boy of the boss. And with him, if you want to tell me whoever about the mishandling of this particular person, Mr. McGrath would tell you straight that, hey, 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 this man is making money for me, and that's it. Whatever he does, as long as he makes me money. We were getting five rand fifty per side. Given inflation, this is about 330 rand per side of a seven-inch single in today's terms. Nobody should come and report. Any of the talent scout movement, and even on the contracts, when we sign those contracts of royalties, you'll be happy because you signed the contract. But, but the flip side, it does not tell exactly what you are signed for. And there's nobody that you are going to ask who will give you the right information. Because once the big boss can know that someone has questioned the royalties department, wow, then that, that will be a problem. Unfortunately, this is not a unique story in the history of South Africa's recording industry. Let's listen to the Boyoyo Boys hit, Tzotzi. Oh, yeah. 
In addition to the Boyoyo boys, Tekwane gave Lulu a job with his group, The Movers. Let's hear one of our favorite tracks of theirs, How Long, with seriously strong vocals and rhythm section. This song is also credited to Tekwane. Sound of the movers was derived from soul. Percy Sledge in particular. Percy Sledge changed the sound of the movers. There was a guitar pedal called Wawa. That's definitely broke. There was the, the monotony of soul around the world. I came out with another hit again, Bam Jai. That was one of the biggest. Until today, Bam Jive, it's still Bam Jive. This is 1977 Bump Jive by The Movers, written by Bralulu Masilela, but credited to David Tekwane as both composer and producer. Whilst credit should of course be given to David Tekwane as a producer of two significant groups in the scene, one can't help but question how the producer label hierarchies obscured history's ability to place credit where it's due. There were still groups like the Flaming Souls, a very good soul group of Alexander, the Anchors, the Teenage Lovers, the Young Lovers, now they were following us because they didn't know how we ended up getting onto the kind of, of rhythms. But I knew that it's from Casey's Ledge. Remember when the Beatles started, there was all this American-British influence of what we're doing. This is Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse from the group Harari, formerly known as the Beatles. The most popular musician at that time would have been Booker T. You know, this is what you hear with the movers, you'd hear with the teenage lovers, you'd hear with the TNTs, you'd hear it with the Boogaloos, you'd hear it with the all-rounders, you'd hear it with the in-laws. These were the groups that were influenced by the R&B of instrumental. And I want to assume that the movers were influenced after they heard what all these other musicians before them were doing. I mean, you had the Flaming Souls as well. Yeah, 
which would have influenced the removers. They came from Alexander. Flaming Souls with their 1975 tune, Alex Soul Menu, coming out of Alexander Township, produced by the great West Nkosi for Teal Records. For me, West Nkosi would have been the best producer at that time because he was a musician first. I mean, West discovered Ladysmith Black Mambazo. You know. Whilst we've heard of groups who had relationships with talent scouts, it's worth hearing from Hot Sticks what it meant for his group to have a relationship directly with the label. Before the band got picked up, they approached Gallo Music, who initially wanted them to work through a talent scout. Our arrogance, obviously, at that time would not allow us to be influenced or dictated to by someone which we may have considered inferior in terms of what we understood by music. So we always felt that we would do it ourselves. We had no relationship with any talent scouts. We were self, we were self-reliant. We were able to dictate to how we want to be dealt with by the record company directly. As a result, we. We signed deals directly with the record company. And I also believe that many of the musicians who were discovered through talent scouts unfortunately did not have that kind of influence, either than their talent scouts themselves dictating to them what it is that they were supposed to be doing within the record company. What's quite interesting is that the, in, by fate, we had uh, moved from uh, Ashams, from Rashid, because we wanted Gallo at that time. And when we went to record an album with a gentleman called Peter Lotus, I got arrested and I spent a weekend in prison. You know, in South Africa, people would be arrested for one thing or the other, you know. As long as you were black, you were subjected to pass rates and so If you walked around and you didn't have your reference book, you know, and I didn't carry mine on the day and there was this, you know, I found myself having to go to didn't go to court. I was taken to Mordebi straight away. How we got to record with Rashid was because when Selby and Alec went to the Lotus to say, look, Sipo is arrested, we can't go into the studio. He was furious. He was, he was merely interested in whether we go into the studio or not. But uh, already we were negotiating with Gallo, you know, before we even went to Ashams. And Rashid gave Selby and Alec the money for them to go and bail me out. So from there, we became artists where we recorded the Harari album, the first Harari album, Under the Beaters. And of course, as years went by and so on, we felt we needed Big Brother. We went straight to Peter Gallo and said, we want to record with Gallo. At that time was was fashionable to be discovered by a talent scout. We presented ourselves, you know, so we were able to influence 
direction in which our music can be formed. And Peter Gallo was always ready to love new ideas and so on. Even though most of the music we made not necessarily as commercial as what all the other groups within the record company were, were pursuing as a result of the influence by the uh, talent scouts. The Beaters, a band originally from Orlando West High School. You know, one other thing that I always emphasize is that the advantage that we had, we had an education, albeit not, uh, you know, university, tertiary and so on, but we, we were high school dropouts. So interacting or engagement with business people, I think we had the ability to put our, you know, our point across. We were able to engage with the record company on equal basis, as equals, not as, you know, because we felt that we are presenting the music, they are presenting the investment. Interestingly, the relative freedom of Harari from the Talent Scout label relationship allowed a greater degree of not just representational freedom, but also greater creative freedom. We were quite a curious lot of musicians that we always love to explore different things musically. And every time we recorded an album, it's how we felt at a particular time. But also we were mindful of our political influence that of black consciousness at the time that we we're not going to deviate from that even though with music because we had discarded this pop phenomenon that we we had advanced from high school as we explored in episode two the development of harari's sound was not just influenced by soul and r&b but also greatly influenced by their tour in zimbabwe and that influence came from there because it was the new music that we're hearing after we left South Africa to go and tour the continent. And uh, then the influence of, uh, you know, the black consciousness became central to how we, we advanced our music. And what was interesting about it is Peter, Peter Gallo liked it. And when Harari became the biggest selling group at the time, it was also easy to influence how the record company accept what we bring in. I think Harari was was catalyst, was very important to the psyche of the people. I think we were embraced, you know, fondly by our community, society, the South African people, black and white. And wow, here I am still going on and, you know, based on that foundation that was created by that space, you know, and for me, certainly because I was mostly the song, the songwriter of the group, you know, most of the music that I, I wrote for Harari was the music that became very successful. And out of that, I think I gained a respect, you know, respect from the record company and the support because of what, of that ability to write music, which would obviously, you know, advance the record company's fortunes. The reality is that talent scouts and those successful individuals with composers' credits became the powerhouse of a record company. Yeah, I think it's important for us to emphasize that the record industry, the recording company, particularly Gallo, was run by white people. It was a white establishment which, which would not have had 
an entry into the township. Anything that the record company uh, wanted to do, they had to do it through the talent scouts. Even the musicians themselves were at the behest of those talent scouts. They were all taken to the cleaners. I mean, I'm not sure if they were honest to the musicians that they had approached in terms of remuneration. I think this was one of the most difficult parts where these guys did not know. Honestly, if it, it wasn't for the Taiwanese, the Western Coasts, Bobabes, you name them, these companies wouldn't have made the money that they did whereby they paid us next to zero. Thanks for listening to Gallo Vault Sessions a limited podcast series in collaboration with Gonjo. We hope this episode is the beginning of a reckoning with the internal dynamics and power imbalances that have existed within the recording industry in South Africa. In the next month of the podcast, we'll explore the ways South African music exploded into the global scene, the Mahotela Queens, Lucky Dube, and much more. Today's episode was researched, produced, and written by Zara Julius at Gonjo, with production support from The Good People, and narration by Kaneta Kanutu. Our theme music is the song Doi Doi by Marumo, and you're listening to Kansas City by The Movers. Special thanks to Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse, Bralulu Masilela, Rob Allingham, Bra Mike Swaratle, and of course, Mamhilda Tubatla. Be sure to listen to this month's specially curated mix by Naledi Chai from Fly Machine Sessions, exploring the sounds from some of the producers we've spoken about in the show. You can find a link to that in the show notes and on the Gonjo Mixcloud. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And please also review and give us five stars or however you rate this episode. We'd love hearing from you. Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast collaboration with Gonjo, with new episodes and curated mixes monthly.